you're listening to High Temperature Times, the number one refractory podcast. My name is Griffin Patterson, and I'm an application specialist with Harbison Walker International. Every month, I'm roping in some of the smartest people in the refractory industry to talk about the hottest applications and newest technologies. This month, we're looking at lightweight materials and how they've changed over the last million years. How are they made? How are they used? And why are they so special? Josh Sayer will be joining me later to get into it. But before we do, let's whet our appetites and warm up our brains with a question from our technical marketing inbox. If you have a question that you would like to ask on our show, send an email to technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com with the subject line podcast. We'd love to hear more from our listeners. This month's question comes from Leslie Weiss asking, can Greencast 94 be used for patch repairs? And what is the recommended procedure for patching existing refractory? Patching, that's a great question, Leslie, thank you. Um, patching is a, is a common fix used in the industry to squeeze that last drop of juice out of a unit before a full repair or a scheduled outage. Uh, however, it's important to know that new refractory generally adheres very poorly to existing refractory. So there are a few things to keep in mind. One, a patch will have a better chance of survival if the void area is cleaned and physically keyed into place. You can use a chisel or a chipping hammer to reshape the area and better prevent the new refractory from popping out or falling off from the first thing that goes bump in the night. Second, the refractory surface should be coated with an appropriate air set mortar or a watered down version of the patching material to create a temporary seal and avoid sucking water out of the patching material prematurely. After patching, the new material will need dried out using the appropriate heat up schedule recommended for the product. And lastly, a patch is only a patch, not a miracle cure. You should begin to plan for a complete replacement during a future outage. Thank you, Leslie, for providing such an excellent question. 2000 years ago, Roman engineers discovered that the combination of volcanic dust, lime, and water made a strong concrete that could be used for building monuments, roads, or bridges. Furthermore, they learned that different aggregates could be added to this concrete to change the properties of it. For example, rocks and bricks could be used to increase the toughness, while crushed terracotta could be added to make it waterproof. The technology behind insulating monolithics might not span 2,000 years of history, but there are certainly some interesting stories to be told. To help me tell these stories today, I've invited onto the show Josh Sayer. Hi, Josh. How are you doing? Hi there, Griffin. I'm good. Uh, before we get knee-deep in lightweight monolithics, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do at HWI? Yeah, so I'm a monolithic research engineer. I work at our Advanced Technology and Research Center in West Mifflin, Pennsylvania, uh, on the other side of Pittsburgh from our headquarters. Uh, and what I do is support the monolithic brands that HWI manufactures, which typically includes shot crates, gun knights, vibe cast, field casting mixes, and uh, essentially all the products that come to the customer in a bag and then we support them through different installation methods so how long have you been with the company uh, i've been with the company a little bit over six years now and in that time what, what are some of the brands that you've had a part in in creating uh i've worked uh cr across many brand families uh from dense castables to lightweights um some of the cx cs tech brands uh, cast lights, green lights, and uh, some of the other more traditional uh, products, including VersaFlows and the Shotex, just working them, maintaining the product lines. So I know for a fact that your history will learn well to our talk today. 
Um, let's, let's just get started. Um, most people's first thought when it comes to refractories is related to their insulating ability. Can you tell me a little bit more about why certain monolithics are more insulating than others? Yeah. So, I mean, when you look at uh, insulating materials, typically the first thing that comes to your mind are things you see in Home, Be Home Depot and Lowe's. You see fiberglass insulation. Well, the issue with fiberglass insulation is it starts to melt at a relatively low temperature. So if you're trying to insulate a furnace that gets much higher than 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit uh, or where fiberglass would melt, you start to have to go to other materials. And in this case, you slowly progress up the line of uh, lightweight materials from fiberglass, mineral wool, and then starting to move into lightweight refractories or in our case, monolithics. So, and what these products come from is they essentially are based around taking lightweight aggregates and putting them into cement-based uh, products. And then they're being able to essentially be applied in the same fashion as you would use your standard insulation products to insulate a furnace. I think you had a very interesting point about the the melting point of these materials. I mean, I, I don't know what the melting point of, of fiberglass insulation is. I imagine it's only a couple hundred degrees really before it becomes basically invalid as an insulating material. But uh, what about what about some of the melting points of, of the insulating minerals that we use in our monolithics? The, the more traditional ones that have been used for probably well over 100 years now are the mineral-based ones that are uh, what most people is expanded vermiculite, uh, perlite, uh, hadite, which is expanded shale, and then other versions of expanded minerals, so stalite. Uh, there's a whole category, and they're essentially based uh, on where the products were or where the minerals were mined out of the ground. What do you mean by expanded vermiculite? So with vermiculite, it typically comes, it's a mineral with a high water concentration, so when you heat it up, it expands volumetrically greater than its original volume. And by doing this, it essentially opens up the, opens up the structure and allows it to become much more insulating. So that's all part of the pre-processing. Correct. So most of the minerals that are used in the refractory industry are mined out of the ground, run through a rotary kiln, and through that process of applying heat, it expands the structure, which essentially allows the materials to become more insulating okay. and thus reduces their density, which is kind of the, the main attribute of these lightweight materials. So if it's your perlite, which is essentially volcanic glass, has a high water content mm -hmm. when you heat it up, the water essentially boils off and it fuses and you get a nice lightweight uh, perlite particles. So the biggest difference between all these different materials, though, is when you uh, look at the chemistries of the materials, depending on what mineral was essentially thrown through the rotary kiln, uh, it will change what temperature it will start to melt at. So in the case of perlite, it's a volcanic glass, has high alkalis in it, typically has a lower melting temperature than Vermiculite. So perlite, we typically will start to melt around 1600 degrees. Vermiculite will make you make it up to around 2000 degrees. 
it's an it's an interesting point because of the high alkalis. The alkalis here are acting as fluxes that lower the melting temperature. Correct. Okay. Just like alkali resistant refractories, when you throw alkalis in products, they start to melt at a much lower temperature. That's a completely different podcast episode. <laughs> Perfect. So, so you you mentioned like lumnite, um, hadite, perlite, vermiculite. Basically, their insulating value comes from the with the expansion, the water removal, and thus the porosity? Yes. Yeah. So typically when you think of lightweight materials, it it, it comes down to how much porosity is in the structure, but it, you can have open or closed porosity depending on the material um, and the process that of uh, manufacturing it. Um, so when you look at these materials, it, 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 there's a lot of properties that can be depending on how you formulate your mix. A lot of the older mixes, which relied heavily on the hadite and the vermiculite, um, in that case, the the hadite is the coarser particles and the vermiculite were the finer particles. And then the lumnite cement was essentially the bonding force. So it's very similar to your, your one, two, three concrete process where you have one part cement, two part sand, three part gravel. Well, in that case, they had lumnite, hadite, vermiculite versus cement, sand, and gravel. And so that was kind of the original lightweight refractories was mixing together essentially in different ratios, depending on what thermal conductivity you were trying to achieve. So that was all, I mean, way before either of us were born, it, the, the lightweight monolithics they were talking about were just taking one part of, of one raw material, two parts of another raw material, and then four parts of another and shoveling it, shoveling it together at the, the installation site, correct? Correct. Yeah. I mean, they would literally have piles of all three of them and take two shovelfuls of one, one shovelful of another, and just throw them together, throw them in the mixer and start installing. Talk about quality control. Perfect. <laughs> So I actually want to rewind a little bit about um, we were talking about the the melted temperature being dictated by the impurities. I, I think that's really interesting because I I'm used to I'm an engineer that was raised in the classics of science, right? So my idea of a, of a material is is alumina silica and that's it, right? But from what you're saying, it really the alumina silica composition isn't the driving force so much as the impurities in the uh, in the application temperature possible for these materials. Correct. Yeah. So typically when you look at your lightweight refractories, we we designate them a lot by their max use temperature and their targeted application. So cast light brands are typically have 23, 26, and that tw that number represents the max use temperature. In Fahrenheit. In Fahrenheit, correct. And as you go away from, let's say, Castellite 16, which is going to be perlite-based, up through the spectrum, up to Castellite 2600, that is coming essentially from the move from an alkali-rich light aggregate to a fireclay-based aggregate. Right. And that's essentially the basis for at least the Castellite brands. There's some, the green light brands can focus on the alumina content which is more following in our traditional refractory nomenclature for dense castables, which uses the alumina content number uh, mm -hmm. numerization. I, you mentioned uh, the spectrum going from, from perlite. Can you, can you lay out the spectrum for us from, you mentioned perlite, hadite, limnite. How, how does that go from almost lowest temperature to highest temperature? 
Uh, perlite, I think it, in the refractory world, we typically focus on perlite and vermiculite. Uh, so perlite's the lowest temperature, around 1600. Vermiculite's 2000 degrees Fahrenheit. And hadite and stalite and a lot of the expanded clay, uh, shale and slate materials kind of fall into that same region. They're probably a little bit below 2000 degrees. And these are the products that actually go into standard concrete uh, when they are looking for lightweight concrete app, uh, hmm. uses. So they'll just grab a, uh, a pile of your hadite and throw it into a Portland-based cement mix. What are, what are some of the other levers that these um, lightweight aggregates play with? The temperature for one, obviously the porosity, thus thermal conductivity, but how do they range in strength? One of the biggest things that traditional lightweight aggregates are not designed for is crushing strength. And because of the, essentially the way they're formed being in a rotary kiln and a kind of uncontrolled process, the aggregates do not have a very strong resistance to crushing or abrading. So a lot of the strength in these lightweight castables come from the cement and come from the other particles that are added to the mix. Within HWI, though, we kind of have our unique aggregate that we engineered and we call green light. It essentially has the same name as a lot of the castables. Uh, this particle or aggregate has a more uniform method of production. And through the process of essentially making the aggregate or engineering it, it, it improves the crushing strength. And so because of this improved crushing strength, we're able to add it in to our castables and have products that have higher crushing strength while also simply at a lower density. So this is one of the advantages of our green light brands and a lot of even our higher temperature cast light brands utilizes this green light aggregate. How does a customer choose between green light and cast light products? It all comes down to temperature. So your perlite and vermiculite is lower temperature than a engineered fire clay aggregate. So the synthetic nature of our green light aggregate uh, allowed it allows us to essentially engineer that temperature at which the aggregate will start to melt or essentially not be useful. So, and we've kind of designed it around that that 2600 degree mark, and at that point that's where it starts to degrade versus 2000 degrees for vermiculite. So we're able to get, essentially get to a higher temperature with our green light aggregate and essentially have products that have improved crushing strength over the other products out there just based on the aggregate we use. And that that temperature you mentioned that that was again because of the the purity of the material versus the natural aggregates. C- correct. It's the the pure the fact that we're using a uh, fire clay raw material versus a mineral out of the ground, which has impurities in it. Mm-hmm. So, and and, and it, it also comes down to the processing steps we take to help it improve its crushing strength. Thank you very much, Josh. Let's take a short break now, but when we get back, I'm going to be bringing in Stephen Carnes to bring all this science into the real world. This week's product spotlight is GunTech 60 the new 60% alumina gun mix from Harbison Walker International. 
Installing Refractory isn't easy, and we respect the challenges that contractors and installers face every day when doing repairs or new installations. GunTech 60 helps by putting the focus back in easy installation without compromising on installed properties. This latest addition to the product portfolio offers extremely low dust and rebound rates, a wider water range, and online rapid cure rapid fire technology for a faster turnaround. Between GunTech 60 and its zirconia containing or alkali resisting or even aluminum penetration resistant counterparts, HWI has got you covered for your next repair. This product is great for units like incinerators, taconite furnaces, cement preheaters and risers, boilers, rotary kilns and coolers, and a wide range of areas within an aluminum furnace. Contact your HWI sales rep today or reach out to technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com for more information on this month's product spotlight, GunTech 60. Welcome back. For this next part of our discussion on Greenlight Aggregates, I brought in Stephen Carnes to talk about the material in action. Welcome, Stephen. Hey, how you doing? So this is this is your first time talking with us. So why don't we start with a short introduction of you and your role within the company? Yeah, so uh, I'm I'm an application leader for the refinery and petrochemical markets. So I help with all the technical support for, for customers and sales staff. But in addition to that, I help uh, provide a lot of guidance on where the market's going and new products and services and things like that. You're actually such a leader within the industry. You you uprooted yourself and hauled down to the center of it. Yeah, I'm located in Houston now, the heart of it all, right? The heart of it all. <laughs> in in the hydrocarbon processing industry, there are a lot of areas with needs for a lot of different types of refractories, and I'm quite sure we'll be covering most of them in future episodes. But for now, we're just looking at areas that need straight thermal insulation. Uh, what type of vessels are we talking about in this industry? Yeah, so the the first ones that, that come to mind for just uh, straight insulation is you know things like fired heaters and and reformers and crackers, uh, where you know you just burn a natural gas inside there to heat up crude oil or to um, uh, thermally crack uh, your your hydrocarbons. Um, but then there's there's some other equipment where just a single layer lining of, uh, of something to insulate, uh, like an FCC um, on the reactor and regenerator walls. Um, Generally, you just need something pretty durable and lightweight. Yeah, just it's all about thermal efficiency. Yeah, yeah, really. So at the end, at the end of the day, <laughs> I'm I'm sure if I throw the name Greenlight 45L at you and and at our audience, a lot will immediately recognize the name. But the question I've always had is, why are there so many different types of Greenlight 45L products? I mean, why are there separate products for different installation methods in Greenlight 45L? while that not being the case for other products like Castellate 23 plus. Yeah. Um, so because there's a lot of specs behind this and because there's certain, uh, certain physical properties that we have to meet um, both in strength and in density and thermal conductivity, um, the, there's differences that, that pop up when you, when you try to make a product that can be both uh, cast and gunned, you, you end up making compromises. You say, okay, well, here's our properties when we, when we cast it, but then when you go to gun it, it's going to have different properties and perhaps not the properties that we're looking to get, right? So, uh, so we've made three different versions of the 45L. We've got the, the plus, just the regular plus version, uh, which is a castable, the GR online, 
um, which is the gun mix, and um, rapid rapid curing, which is what the online means. And then uh, we have um, the, the Greenlight 45L pump, which, uh, as the name indicates, can be pumped. Uh, but that product can also be shot created. Um, so, so give us an example here where where like the, the casting, the gunning and the and the pumping, where they might be used in different areas of, of the industry. Yeah. yeah so uh, primarily right now in the industry, um, probably a good 85, 90 percent of, of a FCC is going to be gunned. But anything that's that's lower than than 30 degrees, you can't gun downward uh, like that. So mm-hmm. uh, in those situations, we have to cast or uh, pump that full. Um, in, in situations where there's a large area that we need to fill and, and uh, doing it faster uh, can save some uh, turnaround time and money. Um, you know, that's a, a good scenario to use the pumping instead of casting. Um, and the pumping grade is a, a little easier to get into place because it flows a little better. So there's, um, uh, I wouldn't say no vibration, but there's less vibration needed to get that mm-hmm. into place. And then um, having the flexibility of shot creating or pumping means that you could shoot this on the walls instead of gunning this on the walls. And um, gunning is very dusty. It's a pneumatically conveyed process, whereas shotcrete is hydraulic. So you end up with a lot less dust inside and the, the final control of the properties going on to the actual wall, which, uh, you know, like I said, going back to the specs, properties are, are key here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot easier to control those properties with a shotcrete rather than a gun mix. Sounds like flexibility is really the name of the game here in optimizing your properties with all the different installation methods required. Oh yeah, definitely. And Greenlight 45L is the product for that. It's that's the uh, um, the workhorse. <laughs> the workhorse of the, the yeah many many refineries uh, gravitate toward that product for um, FCC regenerator mm-hmm. and reactor walls. Yeah, and as a side note, outside of the hydrocarbon processing industry, you might also see green light commonly used in the aluminum industry under the name Greenlight 45LAL+. This, ver- this version of Greenlight 45L has a special aluminum penetration-resistant package that allows it to be used in many aluminum contact areas where that thermal insulation is required, such as over-the-road aluminum ladles, where ladles full of molten aluminum can actually travel between plants before casting. So here, heat retention means everything, as the higher insulation means more time before that molten aluminum freezes off. But you also need to have that extra strength so that the refractory can handle the cleaning process of removing that the extra dross when it returns for another pour. Anyways, Stephen, uh, back to HPI, you recently published an article with Hydrocarbon Processing Magazine titled The Future is Light, where you discuss the advantages of green light aggregate. Earlier, Josh did a great job at uh, outlining how purity is such a key factor in improving lightweight aggregates. But what can you tell me about strength? Yeah, so, um, you know, traditionally, as as you lower the weight, as you lower the density, um, you know, you lose strength. And and that's you know, what we're trying to counteract when we when we're switching to synthetic aggregates. You know, we can we can make aggregates lighter but uh, still keep a good strength in them. And that's how, that's how we've gotten to position the, the 45L product where it is, is because we can keep it light. We can keep it at a 75 pounds a cubic foot, but still have 
you know, that 2000 PSI crushing strength, which is, uh, you know, really hard to, to get that density to, to strength ratio, right? Without, without using some sort of synthetic, uh, lightweight aggregate, like the green light aggregate. Mm -hmm. And then you, you, as you mentioned earlier, that these strengths are important in in the regenerator reactor, because sometimes there's some, some impact, some uh, abrasion, some moving around from the catalyst, right? You know, on the walls there, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a, a, an abrasive revi- environment, but um, yeah, you know, the, it, it it will carry a load. You know, there's going to be a, a certain amount of weight of catalyst resting on it, and mm-hmm. and um, there's going to be some durability factor there. But um, you know, we we do also use a heavier variety of the green light aggregate, so we can we can change the density of that aggregate in the manufacturing process. And um, we use that in in um, our middle middle you know we call it a middleweight uh, abrasion resistant product HPV 110. Traditionally, this is used in the in the uh, transfer lines at FCC. Um, back in the day, they used to d- use a two layer system where they had a uh, an insulating backup liner with a um, thin layer of abrasion resistant on top of that. But because we're able to use this um, green light aggregate. Um, we can, we can cut that weight back and get the shell temperature we need, but still have a very good abrasion resistant that holds up over time. So this 110 pound, uh, pound per cubic foot middleweight castable that actually uses the green light as well. Right. It uses a a denser version of the green light aggregate. Today I learned. How about that? Yeah. (laughs) So before we finish up, can you give us a little teaser for why the future is so light in insulating monolithic refractories? What, What are we looking at on the horizon? Yeah. So like I said, with the, with the transfer lines, um, you know, we're able to develop this, this new product with that new uh, aggregate and we can change the way linings were done previously. So we've gone from a two layer system to a single layer and um, to make that better, uh, you know, we can decrease the weight or we can, uh, you know, increase the abrasion resistance, you know, decreasing the weight can really help us make things more insulating and ultimately, that's what a lot of the industry is going toward, right? You know, we want to be, we want to save more of that energy, keep more of that energy in the system, be more efficient with how we uh, how we use this equipment. And the lighter we can make our materials, but still keep them durable enough for the application that they're in. Um, yeah, that's it's, it's that's like what we're looking for. It's like you want to have the the great thermal insulation for for efficiency, but you also want to have your refractory last longer because there's nothing worse than downtime. <laughs> right. The biggest part about making these these lightweight materials is the aggregates, right? So we're we're looking at all different kinds of uh, new technology that's out there, new synthetic aggregates that are made with, you know, different clay compositions, uh, you know. But, uh, you know, that's some of the new technology that, that we're looking at uh, embracing and, and bringing into the market. Well, thank you, Stephen. And, and thank you, Josh, for sharing such excellent information with us. It's always a blast talking about this stuff with you and all the history behind it. If you're interested in reading more about lightweight aggregates, check out the article written by Stephen Carnes in June's Hydrocarbon Processing Magazine. We provided a link in the description. For even more information or to submit a question to the podcast, be sure to reach out to us at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com. And while you're at it, hit that subscribe button on your iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify list to get a reminder for our next episode. Thanks for listening.